if you would, this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1, 3, and 4. I promise I'm very aware of the time. And I, I don't want to be up here any longer than I have to be, trust me. I want to bring you the word of the Lord that God gave me last night. I was digging through some pretty sermons, and I, I think they're pretty. And uh, hard, a lot of hard work put into them. And the one that God gave me for this morning, really, <laughs> it's not flashy, but it's what... It's what all of this is about. It's the foundation. And I really feel with the help of the Lord that this is going to get a hold of somebody. It should get a hold of somebody. Everybody say amen. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Go to verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Lord, I need your help right now. God, you gave me this. I pray that I would deliver it the way that you placed it in my heart. I pray, Lord, that we would not only open our minds and our ears this, this morning, God, but that we would open our heart to receive your word one more time. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. You may be seated. I, um, I think about a lot of stuff when I'm up here. Um, I think about... Um, all the preachers before me, I think about all the stuff I've been taught. Um, you know, uh, Nanabelle, Sister Leanne, all the t the people in my life, Brother Vickery, Sister Strange, Brother Strange. And I, th and I think about the things that we hear and, and the things we're going through. And, and I tell you, you know, it becomes so overwhelming. Um, sometimes when I'm in prayer early in the morning and I, and I get so frustrated, I'll be honest with you, I don't even feel like praying a lot of the times because I, I, I want to have an answer for everything and I want to you know, move towards what God is doing in my personal life plus be able to lend a hand to those that need it. And it, sometimes it just becomes so overwhelming and it becomes... A, a battle to reach and to grasp everybody's attention and to reach out and to get everybody's focused on one point and one subject. And that's very tough to do at times. And when I'm in that secret place with me and God, a lot of times that becomes overwhelming and it becomes a, 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 just a knot in my head. I don't even know how to explain it. And God, the last year or so, has just been taking me back to the basics. You know, we're, we want to uh, 
look at the things that society is going through and we want to look at this stuff and think that it's anew and we feel like we have to figure out the perfect answer and have the perfect formula to respond to the things that are occurring in our life. And God is sitting here telling me, Jay, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. The English word for gospel, I'm sure all of us knows, means good news or good message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 gives us the basic biblical definition of the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, for these historical facts to have any kind of meaning today, we need to understand their doctrinal significance. Simply telling somebody that God died, was buried, and rose from the dead doesn't mean anything without explaining how the death, burial, and resurrection applies to them individually. Therefore, explaining what is good about the good news. When you walk up to somebody and say, the gospel, it's the good news. Okay. That's awesome. Proud of you, man. What is so good about the good news? The significance is that by these acts, Christ purchased salvation and made it available to everyone who would believe on him. He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again, thereby winning victory over sin, death, and enabling us to have eternal life. How do we apply the gospel to our lives today? How do we respond to or obey the gospel today? How do we personally identify with the gospel Paul gave the answers to these questions in Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, in which he explained how a person actually identifies with Christ's, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This is not a very popular subject anymore, but I'm telling you, if we are going to win souls in the last days, the gospel has to be grounded not only in our mind, but it has to be grounded in our hearts. First of all, we must identify with the death of Jesus Christ who was crucified on that old rugged cross. We must crucify our old man and put it to death. This doesn't mean that we won't continue to battle our old man because in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it states that the Christian will continue to war against his carnal nature. What is put to death is the dominion and the control that the sinful nature has over the unsaved. Romans 6 and 12 and 14. We are saved. Sin and Satan's control over us is destroyed. Since the dominion of sin over us is lost in death with Christ, we should treat sin itself as dead. Sin can no longer dictate to us or control us. We can overcome temptations and ignore sin's powers. 
Although we can sin if we desire, we should not submit to sin, but we should treat it as though it no longer exists. God has always punished sin. In Noah's day, the preachers were saying, Hey, God, you know, everybody is doing it. It's really not that big of a thing. You, you better learn how to compromise, God, and you better understand that you can't punish all of us because everybody's doing it. God said, if you're doing it, I will destroy all of you. He found only eight who, would, who did not sin, and they survived. God means what he says when he said he hates sin and commands you to come out. Brother Barnes once asked a question. Can anybody cook buzzard so it can be eaten? If somebody brought you a platter of southern fried good-looking food and said, we cleaned him right and we fried him right and we battered him right. Here, try a little buzzard. No, I don't, I don't eat buzzard. They bring out another one. Buzzard dressing. We have the best cornbread crumbled around it. It's been saturated with sage onions and everything good. And it's just awesome. It tastes so good. Now, my friend, I don't, I don't really eat buzzard. They bring out another dish and they, they bring out a great big pan of dumplings. And this is chicken and buzzard dumplings. We decided you don't want any buzzards, so we made it half and half. Now, you don't understand. I just don't eat buzzard. I don't eat anything with buzzard in it. We have 100 pounds of sausage that we made. 99 pounds of it is pork and only one pound of buzzard. You won't even taste it. You won't even know it's in there. How many pounds do you want? I don't want any because I... Don't want any buzzard. That is what God is saying exactly. Don't try to water down sin and don't try to fix it up because I promise you every time God is going to reject it. Every time God is going to reject it. I battle that continuously in my own personal life as all of us do at some point. Where is the compromise? Where is the point to where we say, we're really going to turn. We're really going to turn from this thing called sin. So many people come to me and say, I just can't seem to get over my past. I can't seem to get beyond those, those stupid things I did. And nine times out of ten, it's because they just aren't really ready to let go of it. They're looking for God's deliverance. They're looking for God's mercy. And it was there all along, and it's been there in their life. But the problem is they just don't want to let go of the sin that they had once been involved in. In Romans 6, Paul explained our freedom from sin's power to the Romans when he reminded them of what actually occurred when they were saved. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That was Paul's lesson to the Romans. Peter also mentioned our identification with Christ's death in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 28. Who his own self bear our sin in his own body on a tree. That we being dead to sin should live to righteousness. When does this death happen? A person's death to sin or the old man happens when they repent from sin. This apparent, this apparent from the very definition, this is, is apparently from the very definition of repentance, which is to turn away from sin and to turn to God. Repent is still used in the British military and it means to go to make a 180 turn and go back the way you came. It means to turn away, not just ask for forgiveness, but to turn away from the sin and stop doing it. Everybody said amen. At repentance, a person confesses, confesses sin. He decides to forsake it. He turns his back on it and refuses to accept its dominion. He dies to the lust and the desires of the old man and decides to live for God. He decides to live for God. He doesn't come to church looking for a magic wand to say, I need some help. I need, I need a magic potion to help me to get past the sin. No, he decides, he decides to live for God. At that point, Christ's death on the cross becomes effective in your life and it will enable you to break the bondage of sin. Stay with me. I promise I won't be long. The burial. Next is to identify with Christ's burial. Paul states in Romans 6 and 6, 3 through 4, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism, by the baptism into death. Water baptism, which we will experience here shortly, is effective only after repentance. Immersion is the biblical mode, and the name of Jesus is the biblical formula. Since baptism follows repentance, it actually does signify that, that the baptized person identifies with the dead state of the man, Christ Jesus since baptism is total submergence, it truly is a burial. 
Since baptism is done in the name of Jesus, it truly is an identification with Him. Let everybody say amen. When a man receives water baptism, it signifies that he has died to sin and is burying that sin. When he emerges from baptism, his old lifestyle and his past sins are forever buried and forever forgotten. Water baptism then applies to Christ's burial in our lives. The resurrection. Paul also explained how we identified with Christ's resurrection in Romans 6, 4 through 5. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Somebody needs to say amen to that. If we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Some people would limit this. I've, heard, I've even heard this preach that this is the future bodily resurrection and eternal life thereafter. But I disagree with that. But the focus is now the resurrection on a new life in this present world. You can have a new life in this present world right now. Hallelujah. Paul also wrote in Romans 6 and 11, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when we receive the Spirit, when we receive the Holy Ghost, Christ literally comes and He lives in us. The Holy Ghost brings into our lives the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. The Holy Ghost gives you the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Those who walk after the Spirit will have life in Christ. The newness of life in Romans 6 and 4, it also states, is none other than the newness of Spirit. The newness of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost is not just a renewal of the human spirit, but it's the indwelling. It's the indwelling of God's Spirit in your life, in all of your situations The Spirit brings about a new birth and will give you a new life. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes effective to give us a new life when we receive the Holy Ghost. The gospel or the good news, it brings hope to those that are lost. It brings hope to those that only can see the end. It also brings hope to those that deliver the good news. Did you understand what I just said? Witnessing is more than just telling somebody about the Holy Ghost. But witnessing is, means that you get to see somebody that is going to be resurrected by Christ. You get to witness the power of God. Witness means one has to be present at transaction so as to be able to testify to its having taken place. That's what witnessing means. That's what witnessing means. 
Do you have a dead and boring life? Is there no fun in your life? I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to take the gospel and you need to give it to somebody that's lost. And you will get to witness the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in their life. The gospel really, what it does, it it generates hope. Christ in him is the hope of glory. Colossians 1 and 27. And this hope of salvation, this hope of salvation is the helmet, the primary part of his defense armor and the struggle against evil. Hope is the principal antidote which keeps our hearts from bursting under the pressures of evil. And it's the flattering mirror that gives us the prospect of some greater good. When all other things fail us, hope will stand by us to the last. This, as it were, gives freedom to the captives, health to the sick, and victory to the defeated, and wealth to the beggar. Hope is buoyant. Like a balloon, we, keep, we know where it starts from, but can make no calculation when or where and how it will land us. Hope is a great calculator, but it's a bad mathematician. Hope expectations are, hope's expectations are seldom, if ever, based on true data. Hopes often seem fictitious to those that are earthly bound and carnally minded. It's capable of attempting feats beyond, beyond imagination. Hope awakens courage. Hope will awaken the courage that's already within you. And who can implant courage in the human soul? He who can plant courage in the human soul is the greatest physician known to man. Earthly hope like fear is confined to this dim spot of earth on which we live, move, and have our being. But when you start sharing, and when you start teaching the gospel, it brings forth it brings forth a heavenly hope. No oppression can crush its buoyancy. I know a lot of you, I can feel it, a lot of you don't believe that, but no oppression can crush its buoyancy. From under every weight it rebounds amid the most depressing circumstances. It preserves its cheering, its influence. No disappointments can annihilate the power to lift. Like a beam of heaven, it glows with indestructible brilliance. That's what hope is. A heavenly hope can touch someone through the lights and the shadows of life. It is the prophecy fulfilled in part, in part God's earnest money paid into the hand of man and knowing he will deliver the whole when we are ready. Heavenly hope encourages all things great and noble. Freedom to the captive. It whispers liberty to the slave. Health to the sick. It's a home for the wandering Friends to the forsaken, peace to the troubled, it supplies to the needy, it's bread to the hungry and strength to the weak, rest to the weary, 
and life to the dying. That's what the gospel does. It brings a heavenly hope to a carnal world. And I am am ashamed to tell you that I don't preach this gospel enough. It's easy for me to get up here in front of a bunch of believers and to say what I have to say, but there's somebody out there that's dying a miserable death, and I have the answer, and I have the answer to their questions. There is a heavenly hope. There is a heavenly hope for someone. It's the evergreen of life that grows at the eastern gate of the soul. Our hopes and fears are the mainsprings of all religious endeavors. There is, no one's who, there is no one whose condition is low, but to have that, that he may have hopes. Nor is there any that is too high that is out of the reach of fears. Hope is the last thing that dies in a man. As we travel through this life, it conducts us a more pleasant way to our journey's end. When faith tempers the graces and other celestial powers left the earth, says one of the ancients, hope was the only goddess that stayed. If you could stand with me.